I used to be an attorney. One of the last cases, I was trying to help this lady get custody of her kids from her ex-husband. And after we met, she said, I like you so much better than my last attorney. He just wanted my money, that Jew. Mm, I'm Jewish. I didn't say it out loud, though, because I really wanted her money. Hey everyone, it's Dean Masello, aka Woke Dad, and thanks for tuning in to the Woke Dad Podcast. Uh, a little later in this episode, I will be playing uh, a conversation I had with Professor Ann Burgess of Boston College. Ann and I talked about the rare but very uh, horrific act of fetal abduction, which again, we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, for now, I'm going to have a little chat with uh, my wife and life partner, Dr. Michelle Sheets. Hey, Michelle, thanks for sitting in today. Hi, Dean. It's my pleasure to sit in today with you. <laughs> I, I I don't know why I'm, I'm being fake. It's 11 o'clock at night. We're on the couch, and um, we just put the girls down. It was hard. Clementine really didn't want to go to sleep. Yeah, although the the news of the week for Clementine is that at 15 months, she is finally making an effort to walk. Yeah, she's finally like making more than just a couple steps. Yeah, and for those of you who are not familiar, uh, Penelope and Clementine are 15 months, actually 16 months this week. Yeah, 16 months. 16 months. Penny's been walking since 10 months. Clementine started bear crawling around 12 months and so she's or 11 or 12 months and has just kind of gotten very comfortable with walking on all fours yeah so we were a little worried like is she ever going to walk are we going to have to like put her in a nature preserve instead of like school yeah but she's taking little tiny steps yeah and then reverting back to the bear crawl but where it looks like we are going to have two upright walking children here by the end of the week Yep. So it's 16 months. So one baby walks at 10 months, one baby walks at 16 months. Right on track. Both fine. Yep. You know, our our, our pediatrician uh, like kind of scared us a little bit early on, wanted us to do physical therapy, and we're like, fuck you. Not really. Yeah, it was more like, oh, God, what's wrong with her? Because we had to do this early intervention evaluation that she qualified for services and right she could have received physical therapy f- uh through the new york uh early intervention program taxpayer money yep. but we are pa- we pay our taxes here but we decided that she was probably fine that even our doctor is uh is vulnerable to the false comparison of like twin development like just like Oh, do you think that was the situation? I think that's part of it. I thought it was just because at that time Clementine was doing this weird s- seated position where she was she was genuinely having a hard time sitting up, which was developmentally late. That was what the doctor was looking at, which had nothing to do with Penelope. 
I don't know. I, I feel like I can't, we can't help but compare, you know, even people who have kids uh, at different ages, like you have your first child walks at 10 months and then your second child, it's even though it's a couple years later, remember like, wait, first child walked at 10 months. This we're now at 16 months and you start worrying. And I feel like with twins, of course, parents are going to compare, but I feel like even doctors, I just, in the end, we didn't think that, especially by the, it took over like, it took like two months to actually get hooked up with an actual physical therapist. And it was probably more like four months. And at that, either way, by the time, by that time she was sitting up, she had started crawling and we just figured that like there are kids in in more need. Right. And the services are um, hard to come by. We had seen her develop and catch up essentially and saw that she didn't need it and she didn't like and some kids i guess you don't always know and that's the thing about early intervention you intervene just in case yeah so i i, I mentioned this um on on wokedad.com uh, this week or on facebook that the girls are 16 months they only have one more wellness check and they're getting the shots and the shots of course we're all for because we're rational thinking people. We love vaccines. But I am not for these wellness checks in general because if you go to the doctor and your baby's sick, the doctor is going to treat the problem. If you go to the doctor, because some of these visits, there is no shot. They're just checking in. And I feel like there's a pressure for them to give you something for your money or for your time. They're not going to just walk in and they're going to say, all right. Huh, Really? I when feel was like a visit when they didn't get a shot. Um, I went on at least a couple. There's not shots every visit. Really? Neglect. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the working parent thing. Um, yeah, there was a couple visits where they're just checking up on them. No shots. And uh, in those visits, I feel like they just feel pressure, just like a coach has to coach. Like if you go to golf lessons, they're going to break down your swing. That's yeah. what you're paying them for. If you go to the doctor, they're, they're going to try to create a problem that they could then solve. And I want you to talk about this. So also in comparison, we were looking at the girls. Penny is more engaging, more social, at least right. early on. Yeah. And we were worried because Clementine just seemed content on her own. And I made a comment in front of the pediatrician at the last checkup about Clementine babbling more than Penny, which I thought was a good thing. She makes more sounds than penny maybe not more words or attempts more words but she has a wide array of sounds and the then the the pediatrician used a term that as a psychologist you recognized as uh inquiring about autism yeah and explain yeah the she wanted to know if we thought clementine was self-stimming she used stimming the word stim um and that's short for stimulation like rocking back and forth would be a, a form of self-stim we would think of as a way to, to soothe oneself. That's maladaptive. There are adaptive ways we self-soothe, uh, both as kids and adults. So um, uh, as, as adults, we might self-soothe adaptively by talking about our feelings. Uh, as kids, we might self-soothe by seeking out a parent and crying. But... What about 
as uh, part like of a my pacifier or stuff like that or other like more childlike ways to self-soothe but are still considered healthy and adaptive because they're age appropriate but it's like the hand flapping it's and i think uh, what the doctor picked up on was wh- what i've been worried about with clementine which is the loud babbling where it's so loud it's like is she just stimulating herself with the sound of her voice like the vibrations of her voice type of thing and she was inquiring like is it different when she babbles when she's looking at someone like looking at mom or dad and I wasn't able to answer that I don't really know I can't tell a difference it does seem like it is different with Penny really and I don't notice much of a difference with Clemmy I think, though, it could be confirmation bias, not to throw down, uh, you know, I majored in psychology, Michelle. Right. So, so I'm going to throw some be. words that we think Clementine has this. So we're, I'm just explaining it for the audience here who may have not majored in psychology, uh, that confirmation bias is when, uh, how, how do you define it, Michelle? Oh, boy. <laughs> I can say it. I just can't define it. So basically, we think Clementine might be autistic. So we're we see things that confirm that that. Yeah. Whereas with Penny, we're not seeing those things because we're not looking for them with her. So then, meanwhile, Penny is arranging her toys in order rather than playing with them. Okay. She's just arranging them a little, um, like arranging the crayons in lines rather than coloring with them, which is also an uh, autism. Uh, well, I think OCD, since I suffered from OCD. Well, for kids, it's an autism symptom, not okay. OCD. But I, it's funny that would you're right. Confirmation bias for Clementine, not Penelope. However, I I really think when I take a step back and try to be rational and not emotional about this, I think the reality is that Clementine is just um, a little more introspective, like a little more quiet. Like, she doesn't require or want so much socialization as Penelope. Penelope wants to be with people all the time, interacting with us all the time. Clementine is just content to have some socialization and then walk away. She'll, like, have fun playing with me. And I've seen this many times. And I'm sure you have, too, of course, much more than me where she's really happy to play, play, play with you, and then she will walk away and then go play by herself. And then she's and she's very content. And Penelope does it too, but just not as much. So, Michelle, I'm going to kind of try to segue into the topic of today's episode, which is fetal abduction, which uh, a surprising number of people I know have no idea what that means. Caution. Uh, some of this content may, uh, from here on out, may uh, uh, be too sensitive or offend some people. But so field abduction is when a woman abducts an unborn child from an at-term pregnant woman. So say uh, a 20-year-old girl attacks a 30-year-old pregnant woman who's eight weeks pregnant uh, and shoots her, say, in the head or slices her neck, does what she needs to do to subdue her, and then cuts out the fetus uh, via a very crude cesarean mm-hmm. procedure and then claims that baby as her own. Right. I, 
just to clarify, I think you said eight weeks, but I know you meant eight, eight months. months. Yeah, just so everyone's aware they're not taking out a little tiny cluster right. of cells. Um, so these are rare. So there's only 44 known attempts, I think, in like modern history in America. Out of what, what, what made me curious is out of those 44 cases, 42 of them were solely done by women. And so women make up only 15% of homicides and 20% of violent crimes, yet they make up almost 100% of these fetal abduction cases, which, as I described previously, are just the most horrific acts you can think of. It's as horrific as anything else anyone has ever done on this planet. To murder a pregnant woman, cut out the baby... Yeah, I think particularly thinking about the cutting out of the baby with like a an exacto knife. It's pretty tough cuz it's hacking away at a person's yeah. body. And uh, you know, most of these cases uh were done pre YouTube where you could kind of learn how to do things. Which really is an important point, I think, because you really have had to do a lot of research in the past before you could just google something true yeah you had to like go to the library yeah. and spend a lot of time but when i was talking to uh professor burgess uh, we'll call her ann when i was talking to ann i brought up uh, like how m in the overwhelming majority of the cases the mothers die but in the majority of the cases the babies live That's amazing. even though these women in most cases i feel like do no research whatsoever and again i talk about this with ann mm -hmm. and you have they use just any implement that's in their possession really there was a case where a woman used her car keys to <laughs> cut open the abdomen oh my gosh and then another one where a woman used a drywall knife uh, another topic that came up when i was talking to ann what we, we ended up talking about miscarriages yes and how miscarriage uh, uh, when pregnant woman has a miscarriage there's a grieving process that she goes through but for some reason in our society it's not proper to publicly discuss your miscarriage whereas everyone knows if you have a cold or cancer and everything in between but for some reason women have historically been socialized to not discuss the miscarriage and so then you have to suffer alone and we talked we were both we both kind of agreed that there needs to be a movement to normalize and publicize miscarriages everyone is familiar with postpartum depression right and that's when you have a kid who lives right imagine if you have a living being in your body who dies and so w women who have a child get all this attention, uh, whereas women who have a child who doesn't live, they just have to suffer alone. Well, and I think many people don't realize that when you have a miscarriage that you can have this that same experience of postpartum depression. I don't know if it's if it is technically diagnosed the same way. But um, the hormone uh, fluctuations, I believe, are the same, if not more intense, after a miscarriage. Uh, I'm not actually sure at all. But uh, it's an intense 
hormone shift and you're mourning the loss of your baby in whatever way that means to you. For some people, it might be a relief. For some people, it might just be like, huh, didn't even know I was pregnant. Right. For some people, it might be obviously a major loss. Yeah, you might have already named the child. You might have had all these thoughts about this child's life and you might have even purchased. And I was telling Anne that one thought that the first thought that comes to my head as to why we don't discuss this is that usually at the time of a miscarriage, there's nothing tangible for the man to latch on to. Right. And I, I kind of felt that way when we had our miscarriage. So I don't know if I mentioned this before, but uh, we have twin girls that were born in June of 2016, but in uh, the fall of 2015, Michelle had a miscarriage and she didn't discuss it with anyone except close family. And then I started talking to friends, comedians who I knew who had kids and everyone that I talked to at some point, their wife had a miscarriage, but no one discusses it. And that's when I turned to you and I'm like, this is crazy. Like, but at the same time, yeah, but at the time you had the miscarriage, there was nothing for me. I didn't, I couldn't feel a living thing. We didn't have a picture of a living thing. Right. To you, you were experiencing biological changes. Right. I had already changed my way of living. So needless to say, I had already formed a whole kind of life for this kid um, to a certain extent. So this actually came up the other day. I was talking to our old neighbor and we a were a friend of ours, good too, friend of ours. A neighbor. And she was actually, we were talking about how funny you are, Michelle. I'm pretty funny, everyone. And Amanda wanted to tell the story of how she found out about your miscarriage. And she prefaced it by saying, this is the funniest thing anyone has ever said to me. And so you, the day you had the miscarriage, yeah, I was not home when you, when it's, when it happened. It was in the evening. So it, it was like after work and you were at a show, I think Yeah, you were performing. And so you didn't want to come home because you were performing. And I, you felt like I was okay, I think. And I think in a way, I kind of felt like I might have been. But I also kind of wanted you to come home too. And I don't know exactly what I said to you. All I, it's, it was this, the experience of I went to the bathroom and there was blood, like a period. Nothing dramatic. And I actually didn't really remember this until Dean brought this up the other day that I had said this to Amanda and what exactly did I say Dean? So Amanda at the time was working for Planned Parenthood. Right. And and they were going through that controversy. Right. So yeah. And Amanda was the kind of PR PR chief. Yeah. So she would put out all of the the statements for Planned Parenthood, which as anyone can imagine, that is a very intense role for such a, a group that's attacked very often. Right. And, and and at this particular time, yeah, it was during the controversy where there was a doctor and she worked for Planned Parenthood. Over lunch. And she basically made it sound like Planned Parenthood just sells unborn fetuses or tissue to the highest bidder. Yeah. And it was really sensationalized in the news. So a lot of right wing media uh, was creating really sensational uh, headlines with it like Planned Parenthood sells baby parts yeah. and, and so yeah without getting into that 
uh, Amanda worked for Planned Planned Parenthood, was the PR chief, was responding to all this. And then you had, so Amanda was our upstairs neighbor. We were really close. And so you had had your miscarriage and she was aware that you were pregnant. Mm -hmm. And probably because I told her, because I told everyone right Right. away before we were supposed to. Right. Because I was so excited. Right. That's the thing. Dean had told everyone and I was like, I don't want to tell anyone until we're like three months in. So then while mom, I'm out performing at the show, you have the miscarriage, then you want to probably want some uh, human contact, direct human contact. So you go upstairs to tell Amanda. And here's how Amanda tells a story that she opens the door and your face is just beat red. And it's clear that you'd been crying. And you say, you, t- you inform her that you just had the miscarriage. And she's like, and then without skipping a beat, you reach in your pocket and you pull out a wad of bloody tissue and you say, how much can I get for this? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, Amanda unequivocally states this is the funniest thing anyone has ever <laughs> said to her. And I think there's uh, an argument to be made that is, as far as the perp- what I see as the purpose of humor, that is the funniest moment in human history, maybe. Well, I think she went into Cecile Richards, isn't that her name? Yeah. Office the next day, and she's like, let me tell you the funniest thing ever. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. so she told the, is it CEO? What is the head of Planned Parenthood? I don't know, the president. President of Planned Parenthood, what her neighbor told her the night before. And again, for me, yeah, comedy, uh, laughing makes us all feel better. But when we're in our darkest moments or you experience the most horrific tragedy, the only way that you can even stomach talking about it is through humor. Yeah. Because humor releases chemicals that make you feel good. Like the, I, uh, my dog Turk, 14, we might have to put him down soon. I've been joking around a lot. Like just he's lost 20% of his body weight in the last few months. And today I cho- told you we were talking about our Halloween costumes. I'm like, I guess Turk's going as a skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. like other than humor i either can't talk about it or i'll start crying and it's like humor allows us to talk about things that need to be talked about but the only way we can talk about it is at the time is through humor well i'm not psychoanalytic but i think freud did say that humor is the highest form of the defense mechanisms it's like the, the highest level yeah like most yeah, sophisticated. Fro- yeah, you know, Freud had a lot of bad theories, but, you know, he had a lot of good thoughts. Like, he was having thoughts. That's good to have thoughts. A lot of people don't even have thoughts. Right, and he was working with nothing. Like, he was right. pretty amazing. No research. Just right. theories. Just on his own. Everything starts with theories. Yeah. There's no, like, you know, when they say there's no bad question, there's no bad theory. Right. You test it. You test it. But test I'm pretty, I am 100% certain that he's right, that comedians are the most intelligent people in the world yes that's what he said that is exactly what freud said you did not twist that in any way um so michelle uh I, I wanted to just chat with you about our week and about this issue and i'm really excited for this episode uh and to hear what people think about it yeah i'm excited to hear it so uh i talked to ann for about 40 minutes uh, again on the story of fetal abduction uh, I talk about uh, a known case of fetal abduction that happened in Ravenna, Ohio in 2000. 
which actually is personal to me because in 2000, uh, when this case happened, I was living in Ravenna, attending Kent State, so um, lived not too far, and it was uh, probably a national uh, a story of national interest when it happened. Is uh, a woman by the name of Teresa Andrews, who I believe was 23 and eight months pregnant, was murdered by a woman named Michelle Bika, who was 39 and had been pretending to be pregnant. And you'll hear more about it in the episode. So anyways, we, we, we talk about gender, we talk about criminal f- profiles, how Anne was responsible for creating criminal f- profiles. We talk about legal insanity and the influence of culture and social media on fetal abductions. Uh, I hope you enjoyed. I think it's great. Michelle? Yes, Dean. Thanks for uh, catching up with me. It's, uh, good, it's good to see you. Good to see you, buddy. I'll see you next week. Maybe I'll see you in bed tonight. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. All right. I'll spoon with you later. All right, so everyone, uh, let me introduce Professor Ann Burgess of Boston College. Ann Burgess. Hi, Ann. This is Dean. Yes, hi, Dean. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Uh, Sounds like you're busy. Oh, that I am. That's okay. So you're currently a professor at Boston College? That's correct. In the School of Nursing, is that right? School of Nursing, yes. I'm a psychi- my field is psychiatric nursing and forensics. I guess for, the, for our purposes, uh, on the subject of uh, fetal abduction, how did you get involved uh, in, that, in that study? Right. Well, I... I had been working with the National Center of Missing and Exploited other types of situations, certainly the issues of sexual abuse, the issue of missing children, etc. And about the mid to late 80s, this whole phenomenon of infant abduction became a serious concern, and it did fall into the uh, domain, if you will, of the National Center. And we uh, we were asked to see if we could pull together some uh, statistics and what was going on, if you will, with that as a phenomenon. And so that's really how it got started. And so we did the study on infant abductions, which is where the infant, of course, had been born and had to have been within six months, was kidnapped, abducted, whatever. Usually it had been from a hospital. And because of being a nurse, that was a a particular concern of mine. So we analyzed some data and published and also published what we thought would be the most important thing for other nurses and other healthcare professionals was what we called a profile of the abductor so that we could alert the nurses uh, to this type of person uh, just by how how they had done this in about... uh, I think we probably had around 100 cases when we first started looking at it. And really, what we were seeing is that people were impersonating nurses, were dressing up in scrubs, coming in saying, I need to take your baby, things that were perfectly legitimate. And so the mother would hand the child, the infant, and the abductor would, would take the, the infant. So there were some, some aspects of what we would call characteristics of these people that have now been published on their website and really have held up over time. So that's the infant began to get some cases. And when was that? 
I think we published a series of papers by two, 2000. I think you had found one of them. And uh, so that, that we had that. And they, we also had the National Center published a, a monograph and really got the information out to law enforcement as well as other healthcare workers. And one of the uh, infant formula <clears throat> companies paid to have John Rabin and some of his staff go around the country to uh, neonatal care centers and so forth to present this information to have people on the lookout for the ploys, if you will, of how babies' infants were being stolen from the hospital. Of course, then what happened is the then they started getting them stolen from other parts like uh, clinics and home and so forth. Uh, in the process, is, what I was going to say is the fetal abduction became an issue. And by the time we started looking at that, there had been close to, I think, 10 or 12 cases. And, of course, now I think it's up to like 18 or 19. Has, is there any knowledge of how, you know, hospitals... I guess, responded by intensifying security. Like I know when my wife and I, uh, we have 15-month-old twin girls, it seems the custom today is that the, the babies can almost immediately be brought into the room with the mom, whereas they used to, I know when I was born and from you know probably most of the 20th century, the babies were kind of put in a nursery with all of the other babies. And so was there some sort of effect where hospitals increase security? And is there any thought that that then has led to this phenomenon of, you know, going back to uh, pre-birth and, you know, the, the women who may have otherwise been dressing up as nurses at the hospital to obtain a newborn uh, out of desperation have been forced? Well, that, well yes, I think you're asking. They, they cannot go into a hospital and, and abduct a pregnant woman and then extract the, ba- the infant. No, they're going to find the pregnant woman in the, in the community. That's what actually has happened. But, uh, but I will say that I think the dynamics are different, that persons, women, and it's usually women, that can kill a mother and then you know, extract the baby is a very different person or I should say it certainly doesn't look like the same person as someone who will steal a baby after it's been born. Now, we haven't talked with the persons that have uh, uh, the fetal abductors to really get a handle on that, but we certainly have talked with those that have just stolen babies that have already been born. Is the um, motivation the same? I read they're motivated by, um, at least with in regards to the fetal abduction, that they're motivated by a, kind of a attention-seeking behavior and uh, a need to kind of secure the relationship that they're in as opposed to just they're not desperate for a baby. Um, is well, that... I think... Go ahead. Well, no I, yeah, no, I do think the motive is the same in terms of they want a baby. And they feel that they are, everything's kind of closing in on them, especially if they have announced to the to their network, uh, family, and so forth, that they are pregnant. So as that ninth month approaches or a due date approaches, they do begin to get frantic. Uh, part of that would play into the dynamics of the murder of the mother. But the motive is they still want a baby. It's... Um, 
not, and these are not for financial reasons. We're not talking about cases where they're going to then sell the baby, but these are to meet a psychological need for the baby uh, is uh, part of the dynamics. I'm not sure attention is, attention if it means that they are now a mother in that sense, but certainly not attention. They almost are um, counterphobic to understanding that they, once they are discovered that this is an incredible crime that people find abhorrent. And um, so there's very little sympathy, if you will, for it, at least currently. I have another paper that we had, I had compared two cases of fetal abduction, one that occurred back in the 70s, and then one that occurred more recently. You probably know the Jill Corey, uh, Darlene Haynes case. And that was really quite different in terms of the outcome of the case and how the community, or at least how the psychiatric community, viewed the uh, crime. So the um, the one from the 70s, is that the uh, Winifred Ransom? Uh, the one in the 70s, is, yes, is Winifred Ransom, yes, correct. And if you if you know the case, remember she was out of the, they put her in a psychiatric hospital, and then she was released Shortly, I don't know how many years. It was like maybe three years. I'd have to go back and check my notes. But um, so they 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 released her. Whereas the Jill Corey case, um, she's in for life. Right now, uh, I, yeah, I, I don't remember the the specifics of the, the the Jill Corey case. I know I have a list of all of these, but do you? Do you know if this was as a just completely different set of facts or change in the understanding of legal insanity? Um, or because with, I think the general public, you know, and even people like yourself and myself are just horrified. You know, it's just such a brutal act. You would think, how could any rational thinking person commit this act? Uh, right. You know, and to a degree, most crimes are heat of passion in in a sense that's kind of a crime of impulse, I guess you could say. Like if you if a spouse walks in on their partner sleeping with another person, they're, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, they're temporarily insane. But it, the law doesn't recognize that as a full excuse, but they do recognize it uh, as a way to um, reduce what your punishment might be. So it's a mitigating circumstance. Right, right. Well, there were different accounts, certainly in the uh, ransom case that uh, police had said that she told them after they arrested her that she could not have children of her own and she wanted a baby badly. That's what she told them. And so um, she she claimed to the husband, she was married at the time, that she killed Mrs. Sweeney, who was the pregnant woman, when she tried to take my baby. Now, whether you think she really thought that, or whether she's using that as an excuse, uh, there isn't any information on that. But at any rate, they did feel she was schizophrenic, and they put her in the psychiatric hospital and then released her as, as cured in three three years. Jill, uh, Julie Corey, on the other hand, had a very tough life, a history of violent relationships. She was arrested in a drug bust. Um, there was, when they picked her up, they, she had all kinds of... Uh, Drugs, heroin, marijuana, she had a stolen handgun. So she had a lot of the factors that would 
make people very less sympathetic. Let's put it that way. Certainly less sympathetic. And the way that she she had befriended um, Haynes, and Haynes had known her, and so when when that uh, she killed her and took the baby and then left her in the apartment so it wasn't found for a while um she when it came to trial time uh, and the way it was picked up was quite interesting that that it was dna see we had that which we didn't have in back in the 70s and um they were able to at court bring up a number of, of factors that i think made them very um uh, very against anti, you would say against her. Um, so even though it, it's been, a, I'm sure it's been appealed. It's been appealed on very different charges than the ransom case. Uh, going back to the motive for a second, is there uh, a known case where the perpetrator did not have a partner? It seems like in a lot of these cases, like you said, there's a some. You know, they begin this as a ruse to. Either they, they really want a baby, or there might also be a component where they feel like they might lose their partner, and so they come up with this pregnancy. Because I know in some of the cases, the women already have a child of their right. own. Right, right. And that's a good question. My read on this is that they did have some partner in the picture somehow, whether that's because uh, it's a failing relationship and the baby is to try to you know, regain the relationship um, is is a, an issue that you often have to, to look at. But I'm not, if you're asking, have we ever seen a case where she's just been alone? Uh, no, I, I, I don't see that. And a lot of them, you know, have, have children, have their own children. So that's always been a very curious kind of feature. Right, that kind of gives credence to the the the, the thought that it's if not that it has nothing to do with obtaining a baby, but it has more to do with uh, you know a relationship with a partner and keeping that relationship. Uh, and I was talking to my wife, uh, who's a psychologist, but you know by no means an expert in this area. But you know we're, we're kind of living in this a time here where. Uh, we're moving more towards an egalitarian society. And, you know, I used to do a lot of uh, domestic violence uh, advocacy in Ohio where um, I would travel to these small towns where you still had a traditional household setup where, you know, the men had the job and the women were dependent. And so the state set up this program so that uh, attorneys would, uh, from out of town, could come in and represent women who would otherwise go unrepresented uh, but now you have this shift in our society where women are becoming co-equals in terms of access to jobs. If you know, maybe right. we're obviously right. obviously the pay gap still exists. But as women right. become more financially independent, uh, like my sister, who, again, uh, forgive me if I go on a tangent, but uh, <laughs> my sister was in an abusive relationship, which is a big reason why I went uh, down the path that I did, and. She was the breadwinner, though, and she was able to escape from that relationship. If it had mm-hmm. been reverse, you know, I don't know if she would have had right. the courage right. to leave. So as women become more independent, will there be kind of, not that fetal abduction is rampant, but 
uh, it, I guess, could influence. Because it's, to me, one of the more interesting aspects uh, beyond just the sensational aspect of these crimes is if you look at homicide and uh, crimes of violence, you know, women make up maybe 15 to 20 percent of violent crimes, whereas I think there was a number, number in my head is about 44 known uh, attempts of, of fetal abduction and 42 out of the 44 cases were women. And so in looking at society as a whole, you know, women are much less violent than men, but they're almost exclusively committing this just horrific act. You know, right. are, are, there, right. are there a lot more women out there who want, desperately want a baby either for attention or for the baby or just a relationship, but they're just not willing to go there. Like they might pretend to be pregnant and then at some point they'll pretend to have a miscarriage. Like they're not willing to right. go that far. Right. Right. See, I think that if to give them a benefit of a doubt, I think you're right. If if somebody, if a woman is pregnant and then loses the baby and doesn't want to admit that or whatever, that puts that's a little different than the one that wants a baby and knows she can't have a baby, and you know, then then goes through the um, the charade, if you will. Um, we've tried to alert some of our uh, healthcare workers, nurses if you will, that work with, uh, with prenatal uh, women, and especially if there has been a miscarriage, to pay a little bit more attention to helping them resolve that, you know, so you don't run into one of these kinds of things. I don't know whether that's going on actively, but that certainly would be one of the prevention things you'd want to do, if indeed they even come into, the, into a health care area. So, so you're kind of suggesting a, kind of a follow-up program for these women who suffer the miscarriage to kind of... Right, right. That would be, or make sure to keep in, in at least do some kind of telephone follow-up or something to make sure that there's been some resolution. Right. Because there are a lot, you know, there are a lot of women that miscarry before, say, the fourth month. So it's not, it's not an uncommon type of, of situation. Yeah. So we, we, that's, yeah. So is that something that maybe we need to just discuss more like you know everyone knows not to compare the two but if someone has cancer everyone knows that that person has cancer right like my wife had a miscarriage our first try and then I I talked to some friends and almost all of them had had the same experience but it's just for some reason their women are expected to kind of suffer this this and grieve alone right uh is that something that would you oh, I think that's so common, and we don't pay attention to it. And it certainly is something I highlighted in in uh, any any type of talk I, I do. Y people don't. It, it's a it's a real a grief situation. It's a loss, and you don't help women by saying, "Oh, well, you'll get pregnant again." You know, it 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 doesn't give uh, full justice, if you will, to the to the infant to the fetal uh, that has been lost. So. I've always said when when you know of a miscarriage, talk about it or, or bring it out or at least have a support group. You know, other women that have gone through it, that's probably the most helpful type of thing. And now that we've got the Internet, you don't even have to get together. You can talk with each other on the on the Internet, and it'd be an easy way to, to help women for, you know, uh, 6 to 12 months 
after such an event? Well, if you're, yeah, there's probably very few women, married women, that haven't had that experience at some point in their, in their reproductive uh, life. Yeah, definitely think it seems like it's something that, you know, so everyone would and benefit. I don't, yeah, and I don't know how much the, the uh, partner ha- has thinks about it. They, they need to understand it, too, so that they can be supportive. Right. I remember, again, not to get too personal, but when my wife had the miscarriage early on, it was definitely more real to her at that point than it was to me. Of course, yeah. And so she definitely, um, you know, suffered more than I, I did. I was trying to be there for her, even though I personally didn't feel like I had to grieve. Maybe that's why it's because (laughs) men are not, you know, part of that. Yeah. But it definitely should be something that's talked about and normalized. Yeah. Right. Right. Of course. So, I mean, that's always something that can be, I think, is, is. Needs to be said. You know, there, have you been following to get back this uh, Gray Wind case out of North Dakota? Uh, no, is that that's uh, one of the more well, recent? Well, I yeah, I think it's a fatal abduction, but they haven't really talked about it. It's really been pretty hidden. It happened in August, and uh, they haven't released much more. All they said it was a homicidal death. Well, of course, hers was. But she was eight months pregnant at the time, and the baby was found alive. The Greystone. It was out of North uh, North Dakota. And I, I've just been waiting to see something. There hasn't been much uh, on that. Is that uh, that's from August? I'm looking at my notes here. There's a yeah. Look at North Fargo, Dakota. North Dakota. Yeah, gray gray wind. gray wind. She was Indian. And it looks like there was a. a a man and a woman charged. That's, yes, they are charged, and that's kind of interesting that you have a couple charged. That's not always the case. But it does say that the wanted to obtain a child and keep the child as their own, so it was never clear if that was possibly going to be one of these financial criminal enterprise kinds of cases. Although they found them cleaning up blood and said, this is our baby, this is our family. So maybe maybe not. But as I said, nothing has come out on that since August. Yeah, it seems like uh, most of the cases that I reviewed, at least, were women uh, acting alone. There was The exception yeah. was then when there was a man involved. And often right. the man, I don't know if, if there's a type, but I remember when I was, uh, I had mentioned when I was at Kent State and I was living in Ravenna for a year, and that's when the case involving Teresa Andrews, who was a victim, and Michelle Bika. Yes, yes, that was a very, yes, I saw you were going to talk about that, yes. And I just remember, that was, at that point in my life, the first time I had even heard of this this crime, and it was, you know, <laughs> quite shocking, and they painted a picture of the husband as kind of a naive person who was some, I, I saw the words naive and gullible kind of uh, thrown out uh, about the husband. And, and now in that case, his wife also happened to be overweight. And so it, I guess maybe was, makes it easier without, uh, without passing Oh, it, it does. To pass. Yes, that was one of our profile characteristics, yes, because it's very easy to hide that or for people to think you are pregnant, sure, yeah. I can't help but wonder how someone like that, uh, and also the, on the other side, I mean, obviously there's tragedy all over, but 
how someone like that moves on. And then also on the other side that the, the husband who now has to raise this child, um, which is also surprising with, it seems like without much knowledge, it seems like the baby survives more often than not where the, the mother yeah. is almost always. Yeah. And the implements right. are so crude, like a uh, car key. I read a case where the, the car keys were used and others were the drywall knife. Yes. It doesn't seem like it takes much know-how <laughs> to... Uh, no, no, not at all. Um, even now today you have the internet and YouTube and everything, so people could find out. Right. I guess it, that to me speaks to something where it just, it's not a thing they plan on for nine months, but something that slowly builds and then just takes over. There doesn't seem to be much planning around it. Right. Is that accurate, I guess? I would say that's accurate, yeah. We don't know whether there is... Well, we know that enough goes on that they... They can have baby showers, you know, they go along with all that. And, and I'm trying to think if that happened in the Darlene Haynes, ca- uh, in the uh, Corey case. Did you read where any of that happened? In that particular case? Yeah, in the one you're, you're going to highlight. The oh, Jill the, uh, Corey. the Bika case. Yeah. Is that the yeah. Trace Andrews Bika? Yeah, I, I think, my knowledge, they did celebrate pregnancy itself. And I believe when the two met, they were both sh- allegedly shopping for baby clothes. Right, that was, yeah, yeah. And, that, and yeah. then they realized they lived in the same neighborhood and they were both pregnant. And um, those The dynamics that we see that you're looking at in, in particular with that case, we, we see that. And that's what we had had published on. So I'm glad you're doing this because I think it's really pretty important. Yeah, it's something that's stuck in my head over the years. And then when my wife was pregnant, uh, we live in New York City. So it's you know, you're always literally running into people. And she felt... Uh, particularly vulnerable uh, walking around. She worked almost up until uh, the birth, about two weeks before. And so she's on the subway and she's walking through the streets and most of the attention she receives is positive, but in, in her work as a psychologist, when she was getting her PhD, she spent some time in hospitals in New York and uh, she had been attacked a couple times and she, in, the, in those contexts, she felt like she stuck out for some reason. That, and the person who was suffering uh, some sort of delusion for some reason latched onto her. And so, while she was pregnant, she felt she just felt particularly vulnerable and thought, like, if someone was under some sort of delusion, that that they might notice her and just act out impulsively. Yeah. Uh, and so sure. I, I started thinking about it uh, again. Not that it's a rational fear let's say just based on statistics alone but yeah yeah but i mean i i think that she shares the feeling that many women who are pregnant do you are vulnerable right <laughs> you know it, it, you are vulnerable and uh i don't know how how we, how we handle that but i mean certainly are vulnerable and and i don't know how many think i know since i've been training on this topic that a lot of people's behavior has changed they don't send out announcements you know, they don't put the balloons out so that there has been a change in behavior. Some hospitals, as you already said, have made major changes in security for the neonatal or their infant birthing centers. So there has been an effect because I think there are over close to 300 cases they now have out of the National Center, I think, if I looked at their last uh, statistics. That's 300 cases of fetal abduction? Attempts? No, no, no. Just of just of, of infant abductions, of which, yeah, no, no. Just uh, the people are stealing babies. I mean, I, you, uh, who talked about this 
30 years ago. Right. He didn't. Yeah, it, so. my kind of like uh, armchair theory uh, when I was thinking about this, because um, I've thought about a lot about male aggression and how uh, uh-huh. there needs to be, we need, I, I, I've talked about this before on this podcast, but you know, I have two, uh, I'm the state home dad for 15 month old twin girls and I routinely get stopped and, uh, get advice on how to protect them from men. Of course, when they're much older, uh, I'm often told that we have to get them a brother. (laughs) Right, right. You have to. Absolutely. And it's like, well, how come the burden is on daughter or the parents of the daughters other than shaping how we raise boys in our society? Uh, yeah, and it seems like you know the pressure on men to you know strong and provide often leads to aggression, and maybe in our society traditionally, the women their role was to reproduce, and I don't know if that is that that pressure is what ultimately leads to cases like infant or fetal abduction or not, but it seems like overall men again commit. <laughs> much more violence, and I feel like there can be uh, some reshaping, reduced male aggression. Um, but for women, too, the, the pressure to reproduce can be, uh, you know, immense. Right. Yes, know. absolutely, yeah. So what else can I help you with here? Has there ever, this, we may have already answered this, I was wondering, uh, has there ever been, uh, and I hate the word successful fetal abduction, but uh, und- uh, I guess unsolved fetal abduction. He's going like you said. Unsolved. No, I don't know of any unsolved. That's kind of interesting that they do get solved. Uh, and a lot of times it's tips that come in from people that you know, things look kind of suspicious. But that's a good to know. I don't think there are. Now there are cases that have been solved for infant abductions, but not the fetal that I'm aware of. It seems like because there's usually some sort of personal connection, whether or not it's like the Bika case where they met randomly. And, uh, and then also, in a number of cases, the husbands who privy to this conspiracy by their, their, their partners, all of a sudden, you know, you read about these cases where a woman pulls up in a car. Uh, I can't remember the name of the case, but she was naked. Uh, her lower half of her body was naked. And she had removed the fetus along with the placenta and the sac and the ovaries. And, you know, to any right, right it's shocking. And in that case, the husband was the one who alerted the authorities. And I know one of these women are thinking rationally, but it seems to have a low success rate in terms of... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, it is a curious thing about where the hus or the part the male partners fall in all of this. It, it, it certainly is. I know that they've had several cases where they tried to implicate the uh, the partner, and they don't they don't get. I haven't seen that happening. So right, and I guess that could be a product of uh, you know men historically not being involved, whereas most men yeah, go to all sure. the doctor appointments now and. You know, the, right. their, their wife isn't can't just come home. And, uh, you know, I went to all the appointments with my wife, so there was no way for her to pretend. I don't know. Right. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, it seems like you know it's a rare and horrific event, but just very peculiar. Peculiar, but I think it it includes a lot of other issues in our society, like we we right. Right. It the, does. Yeah. Uh, I think I think that's it. 
I think we're all set. I, I think so. I, I really appreciate, uh, again, you coming on and talking about this. Oh, subject. happy. I, I'm glad you're doing it. I think it's a great topic. I hope you get some good questions. So thank yeah. you. Okay, Sounds thank good. you. Enjoyed right. talking with you. Yes. Bye bye. Thanks, Anne. Yeah. Bye bye.